And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Good morning and welcome to The Real Investment Show. It's Tuesday and uh, today is Bank Earnings Day. Uh, Bank of America out this morning beating estimates. Morgan Stanley due up next. Um, optimism is running fairly high in the banking sector that earnings are going to beat estimates, revenues as well. And so far that's been the case. Obviously net interest income, that is the difference between what banks borrow at and what they lend at. And because of the Fed, uh, Federal Reserve raising interest rates, that has really increased the net interest income for banks. So that's certainly helping on their bottom line earnings. That's showing up in these reports. Uh, later on this morning also we have PNC and a variety of other banks coming out as well. A lot of regionals today. Um, also, so again, when we kind of we talked a little bit about this yesterday, but going back to March, remember we were in the midst of this whole regional bank, you know, uh, problem where regional banks were uh, being taken over because of the Fed rate hikes had reduced the value of the collateral on the bank's books, and uh, being undercapitalized, these banks of course had to get taken over, and that's what happened. The question is, Is are we done with that yet? Uh, the Fed's still hiking rates. In fact, later on this month, the Fed's expected to hike rates another 25 basis points. That will further put pressure on collateral of these regional banks. But has the facility, um, you know, the bank term uh, funding program, BTFB, uh, put out by Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve, is that program enough to keep the bank solvent? That's going to be the big question. Of course, you know, just immediately following this whole big bank issue where banks were being bailed out, Credit Suisse getting taken over by UBS, um, we had the bank stress test come out from the Federal Reserve where all these banks, 100% of the banks, passed their stress test saying that rising unemployment and rising interest rates, you know, these banks are well capitalized, don't worry about anything, but we just went through a bank crisis because of higher interest rates, but yet they all passed their stress test. So apparently something's either broken with a stress test or everything's just a complete phony lie. That's the question we have to work with right now. Because in the stress test, Credit Suisse, which was taken over by UBS, passed the stress test. So there you go. That just tells you how valuable those stress tests actually are. Anyway, uh, outside of that, Manufacturing data yesterday from the New York Fed Manufacturing Index turned up. It came in at 1.1, a little bit better than expected. Um, don't be surprised here because we've been in a very negative trend for manufacturing data here for quite a while. ISM Manufacturing Index, pretty negative here for a while. Leading economic indicators, very negative here for a while. It's been a good bit of time that we've been in very negative territory. So don't be surprised to start seeing some of this economic data coming in better than expected. Expectations have been very low. Um, and because of the amount of time that we've gone through where this economic data has been very weak, you're just running through a, a business cycle and you're gonna start to see an upturn in that business cycle. Whether that's a long-term upturn or short-term upturn, uh, we don't know yet, but don't be expect, don't be surprised to see an improvement in the economic data, uh, which will correspond with the rise in the stock market from last October. Uh, markets tend to predict or lead economic turns by about six to nine months, and we're getting into that range. Um, 
Outside of that, though, retail sales out this morning, this is a real thing to be paying attention to. Expected to come in higher by 0.5% today. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty big print for retail sales uh, for this month. The question is, is, is that actual? right? Is that going to be really what it is? Again, higher interest rates have been affecting consumers. A recent study out yesterday that more and more consumers are now concerned about their ability to pay the debt, their interest debts, the interest on their debts and and pay their debts every month. And that's a big rising number. Uh, So if people are becoming more concerned about being able to service their own debt, then they're gonna start contracting spending in other areas, particularly discretionary items. I can't really cut back too much on staples. I still gotta feed my kids, Um, but I can maybe pull back from taking trips or buying other things that I don't really need, but just the kind of things I want. Um, And so that would certainly start to put an impact and weigh on that discretionary spending. One thing we haven't really got a, a, a real feel for yet is Amazon's Prime Day, just how successful that was. Um, we'll see this morning though, retail sales uh, will come in, so we'll get a good kind of first shot at just, you know, is the, is the consumer, and again, it's never a good idea to bet against the consumer, but, you know, we'll get a good kind of first shot here about whether or not retail sales are starting to show any sign of impact at all from these higher rates. Um, they've been here for a while, and we should start seeing some of that eat into the consumption, uh, kind of the consumption side of the economy. And again, retail sales are important. They're 40% of personal consumption expenditures, which is 70% of GDP. So here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Markets did rally a bit yesterday. Again, we just kind of keep holding up here, um, you know, not making huge advances every day, but we've just been running along the 20-day moving average here for really kind of quite a while. Going back to early June, we've just been trending higher. All moving averages now, the 20, the 50, the 100, the 200-day moving average, now all sloping up. That is a confirmation that you're now back in a bull market when you have rising moving averages, particularly over a 200-day period. So you're certainly back into a bullish trend of the market. Very little to deny about that front. Um, But again, we just really remain elevated in the markets. We're pushing up towards two standard deviations above the 50-day moving average with a very big gap that we currently have really kind of across these moving averages. Moving averages are now spread out, which is kind of a good thing because it gives you multiple layers of support in the market. So you're, as we've been saying here for a while, you're gonna get a pullback in the market at some point here, a three to 5% correction. Certainly expect that. That would not be outside the realm of, of normality. But you know what you're looking for here in particular is that you've got these multiple layers of support, but a pullback here uh, to hold that is, is certainly well with what you should be expecting. MACDs are the, is still on a buy signal. We're still very elevated here. The market is overbought. So again, you know, this suggests that upside to prices is somewhat limited. So again, just kind of pay attention to the risk you're taking at this point. This is probably a good time to be thinking about rebalancing some risk in your portfolio as well. Uh, Tech stocks have gotten really far ahead of themselves, particularly as we head into earnings. So um, maybe take a little bit of profits here, reduce those back to maybe market weight or your portfolio weights, whatever you normally, however you measure your positions in your portfolio. Um, and then look at some areas that are still underperforming, potentially underweight, that may get some rotation because we are starting to see um, a pretty decent rotation into some of the other areas of the market, particularly in the small cap, mid cap space. 
Um, we added some small caps uh, earlier this year with some regional bank stocks, etc., and added some small cap index recently. Um, but we continue to see a bit of outperformance here in the small cap index. Now, that index as well is getting pretty well elevated above its moving averages. So again, this market's pretty extended here. So again, you're taking a little bit of profit here, raising a little bit of cash, looking for a three to 5% pullback along the way sometime this summer. And I, I wouldn't be surprised as we get into next month, uh, potentially August, is, uh, you know, August, September, um, we get those kind of seasonally weak periods of the year that we see that corrective action, which will give you a better entry point uh, to add some exposure for kind of that traditional year-end rally. But just keep a watch out what's happening here. Earnings are going to tell us a lot over the next couple of weeks. That's what you need to know before the bell. Okay, coming back uh, after the break, we will uh, pick up with some of the economic data that's out, earnings, etc. Don't go away. More of the Real Investment Show coming right up. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Declare your financial independence and prepare for the second half of 2023 with the RIA Mid-Year Economic Review. Saturday, July 22nd. With Richard Rosso, Danny Ratliff, and special guest Chief Investment Strategist Lance Roberts. Get our report card for the market so far and what you need to know to invest profitably for the rest of the year. Register now for the RIA Mid-Year Economic Review, Saturday, July 22nd, with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. RealInvestmentAdvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to this morning's show. I'm doing some quick math here. I just want to try to figure out something real fast. So Baltimore is considering investing $7.5 billion to rebuild 14,000 vacant homes. Of course, you know, uh, Baltimore's just become one of the murder, murder capitals of the world, um, uh, particularly ever since you know, recent policy legislation changes to defund police, et cetera, has come along. It's just uh, completely eroded the city. So, you know, in areas of the city, nobody wants to live there because of, of the crime. And so Baltimore has put out a new uh, program, a study called The Build, um, which indicates they need $7.5 billion to address the vacancy problem in the city where there are entire neighborhoods with vacant rows of homes. And so I just did some quick math. That's $523,000 per house in Baltimore. Now, I'm just, the, the question is, is, is great. You're going to spend seven and a half billion dollars of taxpayer money to build these houses, $523,000 a piece. Um, but who are you going to sell them to? Or, you know, if you're going to make this you know, who's going to live there, right? And how is, and, and so we were talking, and the reason I bring this up is because this is exactly what we were talking about yesterday about productive versus non-productive debt. 
Now, on the surface, this could be a productive investment, right? So I use debt, $7.5 billion, to invest in 14,000 homes. Okay, got that. But that presumes that I can spend $523,000. Now, now, first of all, rebuilding, you know, rehabbing a property shouldn't cost me the value of building a property from scratch, buying the land, et cetera. So in other words, if I am going to buy a piece of just vacant land and build a house, I have a cost for the land and I have a cost for the house. So that average runs about five hundred, you know, $483,000 nationwide. That's including buying the land. So basically what they're saying is, is that at $523,000 a house, and I'm presuming that the people that did the study just said, what's the average cost of the house in you know, Baltimore? And they said it's 523 because Baltimore is a more expensive city to live in because it's just north of Washington, D.C. They just kind of threw this number together. But this goes back to productive versus non-productive debt. So first of all, it shouldn't cost $7.5 billion to rehab these houses. Why? Well, first of all, the city says, okay, you know what we'll do is we're going to use 20% and we're going to buy all these properties for whatever the value is. And so they, get a, they, they should get an actual value of these properties as is. The city buys them. Okay? I have no, I have no problem with this. If the city wants to do this, I have no problem with this plan. The city buys the properties. And they buy them for value, whatever they are. They're vacant. Somebody owns them somewhere and would probably love to get rid of this stuff and make some money off of it. So you, so you give them $0.10 cents on the dollar, whatever it is. Here's the value of what this is worth right now. I'm just basically buying the land. That's all I'm doing. So somebody somewhere that owns these properties is going to get bought out for that value. Now, the city goes to a bank, J.P. Morgan, and says, I need to borrow some money to rebuild all these properties. We're just going to knock them down. Look, they just need to be knocked down and rebuilt. <laughs> so they're in pretty bad shape. So you just knock them down. You, you hire your contractors. You rebuild these properties using debt from the bank, not taxpayer dollars. And then you sell these properties off. You put them up for sale. And you sell them. The money that comes in repays the, the debt to the bank, repays the debt to the taxpayer, and you have a profitable return if you do it right. But see, that's not what's going to happen here. They're going to spend way more money than they should, as is always the case with government. And then they're not looking at what the real value of these properties are. Who are they going to sell them to, A? Or B, are they going to turn them into government housing, Section 8? Which, if you spend, if you turn $523,000 into Section 8 housing, that value is gone. Taxpayers are guaranteed to lose that money. But this is what I'm talking about. This is the debt problem that we have, and it's a continuation of bad decisions by people that we elect to run these cities, whether it's Houston or Baltimore or Detroit or Los Angeles or San Francisco. It doesn't matter what city it is. Austin, pick your city. My, my city is awesome, right? Whatever. Pick your city. These, all these cities are run by people that have no financial knowledge in most cases. They're politicians. And we keep electing people into, into power 
that are swayed by special interests, swayed by the money that got them there in the first place, right? These people generally don't have much going on for themselves other than until they get into politics. Then they get, you know, pushed into a political office and then they owe a bunch of favors to the people that gave them the money to get there. And this is how you get all these kind of bad deals. There's somebody else behind these deals of houses, <laughs> probably the guy that owns these properties somewhere along the way, <laughs> some slumlord, and says, hey, I need you to rebuild all my properties. I'll get you into office, but you rebuild all my properties. That's probably where this is going to turn out to be. I'm sure if we dig down in here, this is going to be a political favor being returned at some point. But the problem is, and again, going back to this, the reason that we have a debt problem and the reason that we have slow economic growth and the reason that we have an inability, and I got an email yesterday asking me about, well, you know, what if what if the rates where they are now are we're just back to normal? And, you know, we had very low rates for a decade, so now rates are just kind of coming back to where they should be normally. And I was like, you know, that's that's a fair statement. Except the data doesn't support it. Because on the long end of the curve, when you're talking about 10 years, 20 years, 30 year debt, that's economic growth and inflation. There's a long-term historical correlation for that. So if you're saying that 4% on the 10-year treasury is now the new normal, then you've got to have 4% inflation and 4% GDP growth, and you don't have that. And you don't want it, right? Even the Fed wants 2% growth. The Fed's long-term projections for GDP growth is 1.8%. So if you have long-term projections of 1.8% GDP growth and 2% inflation, that means 10-year Treasury rates are going to be 2%, give or take. So that's your new normal. And where does that new normal come from? That new normal of 1.8% of is debt, as we've been talking about. But see, this is the thing that... that eludes everybody and we talked a little bit about this yesterday in particular uh, because of of the article in the wall street journal talking about the economic prosperity of of europeans and that more and more europeans are just becoming poor and of course nobody wants to acknowledge why this is the case we want to come up with all these reasons oh it was covid the covid lockdowns made people poorer well, it didn't help, right? But it's not the reason that people are poor. People don't get poor over the course of a year or two. They get poor over decades. And if you take a look at economic prosperity in Europe, it's been declining for decades. Because of what? Policies. You know, my son used to live in Germany. He's now moved to the UK and he's just and and I'm, you know, keep, you know, talking about these things and he has this, you know, this desire to live overseas and and you know, just kind of enjoying seeing the world, but he's young and doesn't really fully understand the concept of choices yet because just doesn't have the experience. And so you know, now that he lived in Germany, he's moved to the UK. He, you know, he's he's very critical of what's going on in Germany. And I will imagine that this time next year, he'll be very critical of what's going on in the UK as well. Because 
all these policies that these countries are putting into place is not increasing economic prosperity. They're not doing things to improve the overall wealth of the masses. The, the decisions they're making for either social justice issues or for political gain, whatever it is, is making these countries worse and worse and worse. And yet they don't want to acknowledge that it's their policy choices of more debt, bigger deficits, all these type of things that's weighing on economic prosperity. See, they don't be, you know, spending the money part, that's not the problem. Debt isn't the problem in, in their view. Their view is, is, oh, well, it was COVID and we've got to do this because of social issues or we've got to do this because of political, you know, issues, whatever it is. But those are, the, those are the things that are making the situation worse. And it all is a function of the debt, ultimately, because, again, the more debt you have, the more debt you have to service, the more taxes you have to collect to service that debt, which takes more and more money from the population, which makes them poor. Right? It's just kind of a function of the math. And so we'll, you know, and we see this coming up in the data. I've got an article coming out talking about tax receipts, which have just literally fallen off the cliff here in, in recent weeks. But, you know, you know, it just amazes me that we keep having decisions made by politicians. And look, I understand what the, what their view is. In, in Baltimore, they're going, you know, hey, we've got 14,000 vacant homes. If we can fix these up and maybe we can attract you know, people to come back and live in the city. That's awesome. But people aren't going to come back and live into your city until you clean up your crime problem. That's why they left in the first place. So you got to focus on the root of the problem. Fixing up the houses aren't the solution. That's the result of the cause of the problems that you had in the first place. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show this morning so over the over the last three years, I've written numerous articles on ESG, which is this environmental, social governance, you know, facade that was put together by, you know, the global elite that, you know, we're pushing this whole agenda for climate change and everything else and that we have going on, social issues, etc. And of course, you know, those things are fine, right? If you support social issues of your choice, that's awesome, right? There's plenty of, of, you know, organizations that you can donate your money to. There's plenty of organizations you can donate your time to, no matter what the issue is. You know, if you want to fix climate change, plant a tree. Works really great. But the one thing that doesn't help and has nothing to do with 
climate change or social issues or whatever it is, is ESG. Because, again, as we said before, if I'm just buying shares of Apple from Brent, all we're doing is trading stock shares for cash. They're held in street name. Apple doesn't know who owns them. Apple doesn't care who owns them as long as, you know, Apple's doing their thing, right? So us trading shares with each other has nothing to do with impacting any issues. It's just we're tra- we're just simply trading shares for, for dollars. The companies don't have any idea what's going on, right? Nor do they care what's happening with their stock on a daily basis other than whether the price is going up or down. That's all they care about. So ESG was this whole facade that was put out there that is non-measurable, right? You can't measure many of these things that were purported to be ESG. You know, it's simply companies like Tesla were ESG friendly because they were environmentally friendly, but yet Tesla isn't in, you know, in the top 10 ESG stocks anymore because they don't like Elon Musk, right? So some, something's not right there. Right, that tells you right there there's a problem. And then, of course, we got into the reality of this stuff that, you know, BlackRock, $10 trillion asset manager, was promoting ESG. They were the, the front runners for ESG. They were the ones promoting this and demanding that companies adhere to these ESG policies. And companies were falling all over themselves to try to get in line with this because they didn't want BlackRock to basically hurt them by pulling funds out of their stock, whatever it is. And, of course, $10 trillion of of pressure is a lot. So companies would, you know, acquiesce to the demands to do certain things in order to keep funding in in place. And then, of course, what was happening is that we said, you know, a lot of funds were jumping on board with this as well. ETFs were being issued that were ESG-friendly, and they were charging you four times as much to basically give you an S&P index fund. And we did all the analysis. We showed you the correlation. And, and again, if you go to our website at realinvestmentadvice.com, if you're new to the show, thanks for joining us. And if you haven't read articles, go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. And in the search bar right at the top of the website, um, just type in ESG and you'll get several articles that we've written going through this analysis. And for instance, the only difference between the top 10 holdings of the BlackRock ESG fund and the S&P index was that BlackRock stuck their own company shares into the top 10 holdings. So when you bought the SG fund, you were helping Larry Fink and BlackRock by boosting their asset price. But yet they were charging you four times as much for, for a fund that had a 99.1% correlation to the S&P index, was for, which was three times cheaper. So it, it, you know, it just tells you this was a money grab and nothing more about really fixing the economy. Okay, so fast forward over the last few months, you know, other developments have now occurred. Larry Fink recently saying, yeah, we're not going to talk about ESG anymore because it's become a political landmine because states caught on to what's going on. Florida, Texas, others are saying, yeah, our pension funds will not be owning any of your shares. So once you started hitting, and again, this is the same thing that's been happening with Budweiser and Disney and everybody else that can't figure out what's going on, the reason their shares are declining is because funds are being pulled. And this is now starting to attack the bottom line of BlackRock, of which Larry Fink is CEO, and shareholders aren't going to like that if you start losing a lot of assets. So Larry Fink is now backing off 
of the whole ESG thing, and we talked about this uh, recently, is that um, in an interview, BlackRock CEO basically has dropped the term ESG after a lot of blowback, uh, primarily from big states, big pension funds, which are important, by the way, to BlackRock and their business model. But you know now that ESG at BlackRock really is dead. And, the, and the, the whole facade of this, this has been a facade and a scam on the American investor ever since this came out. And again, this is why we've written article after article after article about the scam of ESG. But you know that it is now dead because BlackRock just named yesterday the head of Saudi Aramco to their board of directors. Now, if you don't know who Saudi Aramco is, they're the world's largest oil producer and probably the least ESG-friendly company on the planet. <laughs> but, if you were to but if you were really about ESG, you would not be naming the head of the world's largest oil company those evil oil-drilling, polluting, methane-producing companies to your board of directors, particularly when you've been very clear that energy was not your focus. In fact, you were going to do everything you could to force change. Uh, BlackRock backed, of course, uh, Engine One to get on the board of directors to ExxonMobil, who knew nothing about oil drilling, etc., but it was simply a move to get social issues onto the board of directors of ExxonMobil. And again, the decisions that companies need to be making at their board level are those that are in the best interest of their shareholders. What does this company do? I drill for oil. Okay, what's in the best interest of the shareholders of the companies that are invested in my company that I drill for oil? That's my job. Now, can I do that cleanly, efficiently? Can I do things to, to make sure that I'm protecting the environment as I'm drilling? Absolutely. And these companies have made massive strides in that ability over the last several decades they've been doing this. This isn't a new thing, by the way. Companies have been, uh, I told you when I was growing up, I grew up in Lake Jackson right on the coast of uh, Texas, which is down by Freeport, which is literally a haven of chemical producing companies. Dow Chemical, BASF, etc. And so... Everybody, when I grew up in this town, it was a small town. Everybody worked for the plants. And they were the most polluting companies ever. Now, this is back in the 70s, and we didn't care about anything, right? I mean, they just had runoff of chemicals into the ditches that ran out into the ocean, right? And so, you know, no telling what kind of thing happened to, to people growing up in that area. Cancer, et cetera. It, it, was, it was common. But early in the 80s, there began a very big push to clean this stuff up. And by the time I, I left to go to college, you could literally drink the water out of these runoffs. I wouldn't do it, but you could drink the water out of these runoffs from these chemical plants because they cleaned it all up. You know, uh, they had stopped, you know, pushing a lot of the pollutants into the atmosphere. They stopped running off chemicals into the water. They, they did all this stuff. They were, they, were be, they were environmentally friendly back in 1980. 
right? So we've been cleaning this stuff up for years. We've become cleaner producers of coal. We've become cleaner producers of natural gas drilling, etc. All these companies have been doing this for years. This is nothing new. But again, when it comes back to what is the job of ExxonMobil, their, their, their job is to produce natural gas and oil. That's what they do. And as a shareholder of ExxonMobil, which we are, by the way, we want the company to do what's in the best interest of the company, not what's necessarily in the best interest of social justice or environmental issues of trying to appease some political group. Again, I want you to do stuff environmentally friendly, but I want you to do your job. That's why I'm invested in you. If I don't want that, don't invest in oil and gas. <laughs> Go invest in something else. Go invest in Tesla which isn't really all that environmentally friendly either. But you get the point. So again, this is, you know, uh, you, know there, you have to separate the difference between what companies say and, and versus what they do. And this whole ESG thing we told you over the last three years was a complete sham anyway, because you can't measure these things, right? What can you measure? I can measure cash flow. I can measure... Uh, debt-to-equity ratios. I can measure profitability. I can measure valuation. I can do those. Those are finite facts that come directly from their balance sheet, their income statement, cash flow statement. I can do that. Those can be measured. Not that anybody cares about them anymore, but they can be measured. Can't measure a lot of this ESG stuff. Sounded great. Fit in with the political narrative at the time. But as I told you then, just like we did, see, we did this before. Back in the late 90s, it was all about sin stocks. No gambling, no, uh, no pornography, no smoking. Couldn't invest in those companies. When those companies came out of the indexes because of that, those were the best performing companies. And guess what happened to money? It all went into those companies. And last year, we told you when, you know, Nobody wanted to own oil the year before. We said, hey, take a look at oil because oil is probably going to be one of the better performing industries. And it was. And that was the beginning of the death of ESG. People want performance. Social issues are great, but at the end of the day, as an investor, people want to make money in the markets. And money's going to follow money. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So we've talked about student loan uh, debt, which is now a problem that's coming. Student loan forgiveness was highly anticipated by many younger people in the country that have student loan debt. And uh, even though they were supposed to be making payments on their student loans, the government, of course, because of the COVID lockdowns had said, okay, you know, we're going to put a moratorium on payments. You don't need to make your student loan payments. You don't need to make your rent payment, whatever. We put moratoriums on all this stuff as if there wasn't going to be payback for this at some point. And of course, 
individuals were more than happy to take advantage of not having to make payments, right? Gave them a lot of extra money to spend, which is why we saw a big surge in economic activity. People were buying a lot of stuff, retail sales demand. That created inflation. Because, again, I couldn't produce anything, yet I had a, everybody wanting to buy this stuff I couldn't produce. So when you have limited supply, increased demand, you have inflation. So we saw inflation. Of course, that's all reversing now. And the last bit of support for the economy was that moratorium on student loan payments, which is set to expire over the next month or so unless the Biden administration can figure out some way to circumvent the recent Supreme Court decision. We'll see what happens. But we've talked about this before. The typical monthly loan payment is between 210 and 314. And we did the math for you before here on the show and just do some rough estimates. If you have about 40 million borrowers, apparently, you know, the, the, the numbers vary. Um, but the, the, the rough estimate is 44 million. So let's just use 40 million as a mark. So we have 40 million participants that the average payment is around $359 a month, but let's just call it 300 bucks. So let's just split the difference between 210 and 314, you know, and I need easy math this early in the morning. So let's just say it's 300 bucks on average. That's $12 billion a month. Right in retail sales, we've talked about these numbers. We wrote an article on the website, so if you go to realinvestmentadvice.com, uh, search bar at the top, student loans. <laughs> you know, pretty much if there's a topic, I've written an article on it. Just put that topic in the search bar; you're going to get a blog post on it. Um, but I just want to read to you this little this little bit from Wells Fargo this morning. The typical loan, uh, monthly loan payment will be between 210 and 314 Wells Fargo estimated using data collected in 2019. So this data is pretty old, uh, 2019. There's been a lot of student loans since then. The return of loan payments will take a more of a bite out of many borrowers' budgets than a single year of dramatic increases in inflation did. From December 2021 to 2022, the income of the typical U.S. household decreased on average by 1% when adjusting for inflation according to estimates from uh, the, their, their economists at Wells Fargo. Their point is, is that when you take a look at the size of the average payment that students will have to make on student loans, or I shouldn't say students because they're no longer students, they're out of college now. So the average payment that people have to make on their student loan debt when it restarts is between 4 and 5%. Of their income. So in other words, they're about to get a 4 to 5% pay cut once this repayment starts. And so again, uh, you know, we're going to look at retail sales today. They're expected to be up half a percent. And yet this includes the fact that students still aren't making the student loan payments. You know, so again, if retail sales this morning come in weaker than expected, there's your kind of your first warning shot that retail consumers are slowing down here and then add on top of this the risk of a much slower spend rate when these student loans have to be paid. Now, a lot of economists and analysts are just writing all this off. They're saying, oh, it's not an event. And maybe it is a non-event. We'll see how well the consumer is able to stand up to it. But you know, I think the real key point here is that all of a sudden, I've got $300 going out the door that I didn't have last month. 
So last month, I didn't have a $300 bill I've got to pay every month. And all of a sudden, that's $300 that I don't have to spend anymore. So I think it's going to be a bit more than a non-event. It may not be the disaster that everybody's thinking it'll be. Maybe it won't be that dire. Consumers are always pretty resilient about stuff. And so I'm, I'm always reticent to count the consumer out because they have, are very crafty individuals about coming up with a new way to find money. But I think it's a bit unrealistic to expect that if you start to extract, and again, this is assuming that the Biden administration doesn't figure out some end run around the Supreme Court to have these people not pay their, their loans. But if they do have to pay them, I think there's more, a bit more of a punch coming, economically speaking, than what some people think. So we'll, we'll see. But I think this is something that I think we've really got to keep a watch on. And this is not going to happen until August, September, so nothing to worry about right now. But as we get into the end of the year, and particularly around December, we get into the Christmas shopping season. If this is going to have an impact, we'll see it show up towards the end of the year when we get into holiday shopping. And that's where, you know, we may have to rethink, you know, economic forecasts, earnings expectations are pushing very, very high levels of, of growth next year. So we'll, so if this has an impact, we'll start to see those forward estimates come down rather sharply. And, and we'll be keeping a watch on that for you as well, uh, particularly as we get, you know, we'll have a, a good sense of really how well things are going uh, once we get further into earnings season. And it's not just a function that these companies are going to beat estimates, but take listen to what they say about looking forward. CFOs are still fairly pessimistic about their outlook on the economy, even though the markets are doing a whole lot better. So we'll see. You know, as a society, just one, just one quick note. I just saw this article pop up in the Wall Street Journal. You know, as a society, we have to make choices to grow our economy. And there's a reason that when you read the Bible, and, and, and look, if you take spirituality out of the conversation for the moment, and look at the Bible as simply the kind of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. You know, this was at a time that people were asking questions about everything, right? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? All these type of things. And these were the answers that were best suited at the time to answer. And there's a reason that when you look at basically all forms of, of religion, you know, there's a lot of things that th these, whether it's, you know, Christianity or any other religion, there's certain things that say, don't do this, right? Don't murder your brother. Don't do other things. Because if you do this, you impair the ability for the economy to grow. What do you need to have an economy grow? You need population growth. You've got to have population growth. And, and this is why it was always very important during... Early earlier periods in history, 
that people were married, they had children, they fostered families, and those families fostered other families, and that created a population growth. Because if you don't have population growth, eventually you all die out, right? And there is no population. And if you have a lack of population growth, and today we see a, a consequence of that, we have the lowest population, you know, birthing rate since the 1940s. And we have not enough people in the workforce to support the welfare system, right? Back in the 1930s, you had 16 people paying in for every person taking out. Today, you have less than two. And it's just, it's, it's, it's unsustainable math. And I thought this was interesting because people are now, so, so there's now a new party that's the hot invite, which is divorce parties. Divorce parties are the new hot invite. It sort of ended up as a really fun funeral. <laughs> that's the headline from the Wall Street Journal. And the problem with this is, look, I don't have a problem with divorce and, and, you know, per se. But, you know, the issue is, is that we have now created an environment where their, you know, monogamy is no longer a, a function that we promote. Right now it's like, okay, get married, but you really don't have to stick with it, right? It's really not an obligation. Just, you know, hang in there as best you can, and then when something doesn't go your way, get divorced, and then move on and try again. You know, there's and there's economic consequences for that. Um, you know, we've talked about the, the lack of fathers in homes, and, you know, um, you know, you take a look at kind of society, where we're headed, those type of things. You, know, you can all kind of trace this back to this shift um, where people have, you know, stopped going to church. We have the lowest church, church attendance on record. And, you know, you're turning away from these issues that create, and again, outside of, you know, again, leaving religion and spirituality on the side, these are practices that create better societies, more prosperous societies throughout history. And, you know, so we, when we take a look at our choices, and this kind of goes back to what we we're talking about Baltimore earlier, you know, the debt, the decisions we make. You know, these are the things as you start to look ahead at where you're investing and how you're expecting capital to grow, you have to look at the global economic environment, particularly the economic environment we live in and go, are the choices that we're making going to lead to stronger economic growth or weaker economic prosperity? And that will tell you a lot about where we eventually end up, not as just a society, but also in the financial markets and where companies are headed as well. So just something to think about. All right, wrap up the show. I've got a divorce party to attend. Um, apparently he wants to get his money back. So <laughs> wraps up the show for the day. Be back here tomorrow uh, on Wednesday with Danny Ratliff. Have a great day.